It's good to have you here, man. Terran's a friend of our church, and uh, he's come all the way from Cape Town. And so some of you... Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, it is all Cape Town uh, uh, flow tonight. Eh? But uh, I just want, for some of us who are new here and don't know you, would you just introduce yourself in terms of what do you do, your family, how many kids you got, um, and uh, just to... <laughs> yeah, guys are laughing already. Anyway. I have five kids. It's a lot of human beings. And uh, I'm still recovering from the drive yesterday. We drove from Cape Town. Did you, you guys, when did you guys drive, the other Cape Townians? Okay. And uh, my, the, the, the low light of my particular trip was um, I gave, I, I gave uh, Julie a cup of coffee, and, uh, and then I hoped she hadn't had it all. And she clambered into the back while we were driving, and I kind of switch off for an hour at a time while I'm listening to something. And I reached over, and uh, there was some coffee left in her in a cup, so I took a big swig, and I was like, yeah, put it back, I was like, she poured tons of water in there, it was so diluted, and then uh, an hour later, I said, by the way, why did you pour water in the, the coffee, she said, did you, did you drink from that cup, so I said, yeah, and what I hadn't realized in all the chaos is that uh, my four-year-old weed in that cup, But it's already been in my body for an hour. So, like, it was just in there. It was so part of me already. Yeah. Crazy. How low can you go, hey? So, just in time for Dad's Day, Father's Day. Um, so, what I do, I'm married to Julie, and I've been working for Common Ground at Church in Cape Town for 20 years. And I've done a ton of different things in Common Ground, uh, leading congregations, setting up preaching, focusing on reaching out, things like that. My wife is a copywriter. And she writes a mother's mothering blog, and she also works for Common Ground. Can we just give Taryn a round of applause? Taryn, it's great to have you. So guys, I'd like to speak tonight about being motivated for mission. And I think it's a perfect time, especially when you think about uh, what's coming tomorrow. 500, 600, a lot of kids are coming in. And uh, some of my kids, will, in fact, three of my kids will be here tomorrow too. So when I was praying for names, I actually had names in my head. And uh, by the way, if you are new to church, this is a church where you're welcome to belong before you believe. Uh, I, I need to be honest, most of my messages equally engage followers of Jesus as well as people still exploring things. This message particularly engages followers of Jesus, but I don't think it's a coincidence that you're here. So even though not everything I'm saying is for you, uh, just maybe keep your heart open. Maybe God wants to show something in himself to you. I love the new mission statement you guys have come up with. Wow, power. To fill East London with the gospel and the glory of Jesus. To fill East London with the gospel and the glory of Jesus. And uh, I would like to give some scripture just to say, wow, you guys are so on target with that as a particular mission statement. Sometimes when I speak to non-Christian people, they say, that's one of the things I don't like about you Christians, you try to convert people, and that's wrong to try to convert people. So I go, oh, I don't understand. They say, you know, you should live and let live. You believe what you want to believe, but don't push it on anyone else. Live and let live. Of course, my philosophy in life is come to Jesus and live. So there's a bit of a clash. And I often think, what is, am I doing wrong? And then I realize, hang on, I, that person is doing to me, exactly what I'm doing to them. They've got a way of seeing the world. They think their way is superior. Live and let live. Uh, I think you should come to Jesus and live. And, and they're doing to me the very thing they're telling me I mustn't do to them. And you know what? I'm totally cool with that. 
I love the philosopher Voltaire on at least one point. He says, he says I hate what you believe, but I would, rather, I, I would die to protect your freedom to believe that. And I think society works best when we can talk openly and honestly, not manipulate each other, not caricature each other. Let's have the conversations. And uh, I, Christians have, have always had a message. Come to Jesus and, and live. I'm so glad that some of my friends didn't live and let live. My buddy Nathan, if you just put your hand up. We've been friends since we we're 14 years old. He was my only Christian friend at school. He didn't live and let live. He said to Taryn, come to Jesus and live. He invited me on a surf camp that went by Jeffreys Bay to East London, organized by the church. I got saved in East London. So it's a little bit of a pilgrimage every time I come on holiday here. Uh, so glad that, that, that some Christians had the courage to open up a whole new world of possibility to me. Um, I want to speak about three motivations for, for mission. Three motivations for mission from the Bible. The first one is, is this, motivation one, the wonder of salvation, the wonder of salvation. Uh, the idea is that what we have in Christ is too good to keep to ourselves. Like I said, I was 16 years old when I put my faith in Christ, heard the gospel, and believed, and, and, and a door opened, and I, and I walked through it. And everything about my life changed from then. I look back over 20 years, and I ask myself, what happened right there? That, how did my life change? And I could probably say 10 things, but I've, I've just for time, I want to just mention five things that changed in my life. The first one is that I, I, I have a relationship with Jesus since that moment. I've got a relationship with God. Before, I used to think that Christianity was a religion. I used to think it was about rules. And, and then I discovered it's actually about a relationship, a relationship. God is in my life as a real person every much as Every bit as much as my wife is in my life as a real person. And a marriage is built on this, this commitment uh, that's mutual. My relationship with God is built primarily on a commitment that comes from Him to me. I've never been able to, to reciprocate that commitment to the, same, to the same degree. But to have a relationship with God, I'm still getting to know God. But definitely He's been in my life. He's my friend. He's my person. He's, he's the one who's there. Getting to know him is the greatest thrill of my life. The second thing that changed when I was 16 is that my view of all things changed. C.S. Lewis, author of Chronicles of Narnia, he says, he says, when you watch a beautiful sunrise, you're dazzled by the sun. But there's a, there's a cool byproduct. Everything else lights up and you can, you can see stuff you couldn't see before. And C.S. Lewis says, it's the same when Jesus comes into your life. You can see Jesus and he is good and great. But... Everything else that he made, you start to see as though for the first time. When I was 16, you could ask Nathan, uh, surfing was my God. <laughs> it was like the coolest thing in the universe. And then, then when I became a Christian, I met the real God. And I looked at surfing and it got demoted from God to gift. <laughs> it was a gift. And, and, and I began to see things differently. Things that maybe were low down on my importance list became really important. Like how you treat people suddenly became, I saw that as how, the people around me. What you do with your body, what you do with your time, what you, do, what you do with your sexuality, what you do with money. Things looked different because of the light of Christ. The third thing that changed is my heart composition changed. So I was 16. I had accumulated a lot of stuff that you didn't even have to persuade me. I knew it was wrong. 
I knew if there's a holy God, it was going to come up at judgment day. So, so when I became a Christian, I was so thrilled to hear that Jesus forgave those sins. So thrilled. Uh, but, but, but what I discovered was more than just forgiveness. I was given a new heart. Because, because before I was a Christian, I, I used to pray. I wasn't an atheist before. I, I used to pray. And, and, and I used to ask for God's blessings. But after I became a Christian, I still asked for the blessings. But more than that, I asked for the blesser. I suddenly had a craving to know God. I wanted to please Him more than anything else if I could walk with Him and live close to Him and and reflect Him. Where the heck did this craving, yearning come from? The Bible says the Spirit of God comes and lives in our hearts and etches into the walls of our hearts these new capacities and cravings. And this was the gift of salvation. I'm not saying I've lived them out perfectly, but there's a hunger in me for the things of God that comes from God. And then the fourth change was my whole life's uh, trajectory. Uh, you know, the, the, the line I was taking changed. So, so when, a little, when a ship goes out the harbor, if it goes out here or three degrees to the left, it doesn't seem that significant. But as the years take on, you begin to see how different it can be. I, I came from generations of screwed up families, divorce, adultery, abuse, just brokenness and so much hurt. Statistically, it was very unlikely that I would have a healthy marriage one day. But, but what happened? Jesus came into my life. And honestly, I attribute to, to him the fact that I now have a fantastic marriage and five happy kids I mean, I can stuff it all up. We all know human beings, can we're good at stuffing things up. But, but what I got, it came from the gospel. It, came, it changed me. It put something inside of me that, that hadn't been in my family before. And then the other thing that changed is my eternal destination changed. Because, you know, life is full of options, thousands of options, thousands of things you can do. The internet has made it a million options. You can sit there and you can go to a million places just through your smartphone. So we live with this dizzying sense of possibility. And it's an illusion because actually when you die, it turns out there are really only two choices, whether you live with Christ or you live without him. And then it amounts to whether you die with Christ or die without him. And I put it to you, the worst thing that could happen to anyone is we could go to a Christless eternity. Before I was a Christian, I wasn't sure what happened when you die. I wasn't sure if there was a heaven. And if there was a heaven, I wasn't sure I was going there. After Jesus came into my life, I was given this fantastic, deep certainty that when I die, I go be with Jesus forever and ever. And that's a very cool thing. Instead of like the uncertainty of death hanging over you, you know that the best is coming one day. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and here's the thing, in my over 20 years of following Jesus, I've had some lousy seasons of life where, where my prayers haven't been answered and relationships went awry, and I've had unresolved questions and challenges. But as horrible as those things are, they like storms on the surface. The anchor goes down to salvation. It goes down to Jesus. And all the cool things I mentioned have never been taken from me. They never will be. The gift of salvation is unshakable. And when you just think about this, you realize, my goodness, what I got is too good to keep to myself. It's too good to keep to myself. The wonder of salvation. I've got friends that are pretty good at explaining Christian truths, but they're not always so winsome with their non-Christian friends. 
because they're a little bit, there's no joy in their life. They've got other friends who maybe don't, not so good with the content side, but they've got the sparkle in the eye. Those guys often win their mates a bit better. Because I, when I became a Christian, what impacted me was, was not just the, the message of the gospel, it was being exposed to Christians. Many of them had something I didn't have. Nathan had something I didn't have. So that's the first motivation, the wonder of salvation. The second motivation is uh, the command of Christ, the command of Christ. I became a Christian through Cape Town Baptist Church, which has now become part of Jubilee Church. Uh, and uh, when I became a Christian, it was a Baptist church. And I, after a week of being a Christian, they said, you know, you need to get baptized. I was like, you Baptist, I knew you were going to get me with baptism. And I held out for a couple of months. And then eventually I got baptized. And afterwards, the youth leader, he was joking, but he was trying to make a point. He said, you know, what is the purpose of becoming a Christian? So I said, so you can have a relationship with God. And he said, true. He said, but what else? said, it's, it's cool that you come to know God, but you also, you're saved not only to know God, but to make God known. He said, if your purpose was just to know God, when I baptized you, he had a smile in his face, he said, I could have just kept you under there for a few minutes. And then you could have gone to know God happily forever. He says, but, but, I, but, I, but I didn't, because you were saved for more than knowing God. I pulled you out the water because you got work to do. And my goodness, I've been working over the decades thanks to that youth leader who was kind enough to spare me. Um, all this talk of reaching out to people far from God, um, I, I really don't want anyone to walk away feeling like, ah, oh, one more thing I have to do. You know, one more thing I have to do. It's like, Jesus, tiring being a Christian. One more thing I have to do. I'd hate that. Because... It's, it's not so much something you have to do, it's something you get to do. I mean, you get a hold of a grandparent who's, who sees their grandchild for the first time, they take a photo, then you say, don't show anyone that photo. They're, like, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to put it on Facebook. They're going to show everybody that photo of that grandchild. And you find somebody who used to think life was just molecules and mayhem and flesh and blood, and then they come to know the living God. And they realize that they get to live with God and there's a purpose for their lives and, and that God is good. And then you say, don't tell anyone. They're going to really struggle. So, so I, I hope you're getting that. It's something you get to do, not something you got to do. But when you follow Jesus for decades, it's amazing how, how Christians, it happens to me, it happens to all Christians, it happens to churches. We get lazy, we get selfish, we get listless. And we start going, ugh, somebody else can do it. It happens. And you know the fallback in that time? It's to find out what Jesus has to say about this. What Jesus has to say about this. And uh, William Carey, he, he was the, he's called the father of modern day missions. He, was, uh, he lived in 1761 to 1834. He was a, a, a British guy. He, and he went to the British society. He said, hey guys, we're doing a lot of evangelism in our little Britain here, but geez, the world is huge. Why don't we send out missionaries and take the gospel to them? And you know what these, the guys said at the top of his denomination? He said, if God wants the heathen to be saved, they were talking about India specifically, if God wants the heathen of India to be saved, he can do that on his own. He doesn't need us fussing about such things. And then they quoted a verse about election, where God, God decides who's going to become a Christian, not us. 
And William Carey was a bit thrown by this, so he went back, he studied the Bible, and he, he realized, they're wrong! And he wrote a, a famous little paper called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens, in which he said, look, the Bible says we've, we must fuss about such things. And he took it back to the British Missionary Society, showed it to them, they said, flip, you're right, and they started the society, and they sent him to India, my goodness, he... He, he opened stuff up in India, started universities, spread the gospel, translated uh, the Bibles into local languages, and thousands of missionaries followed in his example. But what I love about it is he said, he said it's amazing how Christians can get lazy and make excuses, and you go back to the words of Jesus. You go back to the last words of Jesus. Um, when I was 16, six months before I became a Christian, my father died of AIDS. He was only 36 years old. HIV AIDS, one of the first hundred people in the country to die. I'm looking at Dave Kettles, my friend here. Amazing coincidence slash God incidence. Dave started out his medical career as part of his studying track, looking after the HIV AIDS unit at Somerset Hospital. And he was the doctor of my father in the final months of his life, weeks of his life. And, uh, but two days before my dad died, I probably walked past you into that room. I get a chance to sit with my dad and he gives me his last words. And he says, don't remember me like this because he was emaciated, half his body weight. And he says, I love you. And then he gave me an instruction, look after your brother because I was the oldest of two. And that's his, and then he dies. And I've got this responsibility, look after my brother. Six months later, I become a Christian. My life turns heavenward. But honestly, my brother's life turns hellward. The guy became hard, bitter. Uh, I remember coming home, and as I opened the door, I hear him swearing at my mother. He's, what, he's like 15 years old. I couldn't believe it. I mean, are you even allowed to swear at your mother when you Couldn't believe it. Unrepentant, he's just bad. And then I tried to speak to my Jesus. He'd have nothing of it. And I remember feeling awful. My dad gave me one job, and I'm stuffing up. And then about three years later, I've been praying for the guy a lot. He became a Christian. He met the school, and the school said, well, if you want to hang out with me, come to church, and we'll hang out afterwards. And he went, and at this church meeting, he encountered God's presence, and he opened up his life to Jesus. And then shortly after my brother became a Christian, I have a dream, and I see my father. He looks so healthy, because in heaven, you get a new body. My dad got saved two days before he, became a Christian, before he died. And then a day before he died, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's in heaven. And he says to me, he says, Taryn, how is Ryan doing? In other words, I gave you one job. How are you doing? And I said, Dad, Dad, guess what? Ryan is saved. He, Jesus is in his life. And my dad had this big smile. And then, uh, and, then, and then the dream ended. And I woke up so relieved. I'd done the one thing my dad had asked me to do. You know, Jesus had some last words. I can summarize them. It went like this. Remember me like this. He had the nail pierced hands, but he was glorious in his resurrection body. And then he said, I love you. And then he said, not just look after your brother, but look after the world and don't give up till they all come to me. Well, he said like that more or less. I mean, Matthew 28, just before he goes up to heaven, he says, go and make disciples. The end of Mark's gospel, he says, go and preach the gospel to all creation." St. Francis of Assisi used to preach to animals based on this verse. I don't think it's what Jesus meant. And uh, Luke 24, and this gospel will be preached 
to all nations. And John 20 verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then the book of Acts, just before Jesus returns to the Father, he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Talk about amazing final words. Clear as day. See, when the bloodstained Lord of the cosmos and the church issues a command, disobedience is a serious thing. Over two years ago, a famous uh, theologian and pastor called John Piper, he wrote these words. He says, from time to time in the life of the church, there needs to be a wake-up call to some simple and central and basic things. One of these is Christianity is a converting faith. It is evangelistic. It is persuasive and expansive and missionary. It is not coercive. It does not use the sword or manipulation or brainwashing, but it does proclaim and it persuades and it pleads and it prays. And when we lose a passion to see people won over to Jesus, we lose Jesus. See, Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing, missionary faith or it is not true Christianity. We need to be reminded of this because it's almost incredible how listless we can become while calling ourselves Christians. Little by little, our whole orientation can become inward. We just go about our in-house religious business like running a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until there is nothing left but a smooth running program for the doctors and the nurses and their children. That is what happens to many churches. We turn it into our own religious club. And we lose the vision, the passion to fill the city that we're part of with the gospel and the glory of Jesus. Okay, so what do we got? We've got the wonder of Jesus. You've got the command of Jesus. But number three, you've, you've, you've got the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Um, Jesus was a person of tremendous compassion. We know this in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, he looks at crowds. Crowds often flock towards him like a magnet. And, and it, it says this in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, vulnerable to the wolf on the wrong path without real substantial and lasting comfort. And then the language of helpless and arrest, strong language, I mean, it can be translated plundered, distressed, bewildered, dejected, and scattered. Jesus is describing the human experience, especially the human experience outside of the gospel. Now, I know many people, especially nowadays, go, oh, no, that's not me, I'm fine. And, and you know the people who are saying I'm fine? They're that small slither of society that have got some education, they've got nice supportive families, they've got some money in their pocket, and, and, they, and they sometimes you go through months and you really do think you're fine. Some people are lucky enough to go through years. I'm sure there's some people that pull off decades of thinking they're fine. But eventually, you realize you're not fine. And there comes a day where you look yourself in the mirror and you go, geez, underneath all of this facade of togetherness is a tremendous non-togetherness. Helpless, harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at people. And he's filled with compassion. And he knows that what they need more than anything is him. And he's filled with compassion. The Greek word for, for compassion, uh, I don't know Greek, but this is a cool word. Splag chnistheis. Okay? The English word doesn't do justice, compassion. Splag I mean, it just doesn't do. 
you know what that word means, literally? It means a deep churning of the bowels. I mean, it sounds gastric, but it's not what it means. What it means is it's gut-wrenching pain. Jesus looked at people, and he almost doubled over in a, a deep pain. He cared about people so much, he felt pain in his body, not just in his heart. See, God's heart is not made of stone. It's an open wound of love. You've never met a person. You've never met a person that Jesus didn't feel compassion towards. I know we, we've got a way of feeling emotionally connected to some people, and then the rest we just discard. They're just people walking past. But, but Jesus has got the capacity to feel compassion for every person, including the people that actually irritate the heck out of you. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, beautiful example of a Christian, who gets it. It's almost like his heart is in sync with Jesus' heart. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Christ's love compels us. He says, it's like, as I walk with Jesus, I can feel Jesus' heart beating in me. He says, he says, we try persuade others for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors. We're his dignified representatives, ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's part of the gospel. Part of the gospel is saying to people, uh, God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him so that your sins aren't counted against you. You can be restored to relation with God. Now be reconciled to God by putting your faith in his son. But what drives Paul, we're told, is love. Christ's love compels us. Speaking about HIV AIDS, what a terrible disease. Uh, no cure for it. No cure for it. Cuts your life short. Um, millions of people have died of it. Millions of people sick with it. Uh, now, just imagine, for a thought experiment's sake, that every person in the world, every person you know, is HIV positive. Just imagine, including you. One day, you're in the science lab, you're fiddling around, and you somehow create something that you ingest, and lo and behold, you get better. So you go to the doctor, you go to, you go to Dr. Kettles, he gives you a clean bill of health. He's startled. You, you, there are no signs of the infection in your life. You are free from this terrible virus. Now imagine that this happens to you because you've got the cure, and then you decide, I'm not going to tell anyone, not my friends, not my neighbors, not my family members, not no one. I'm just going to keep it to myself. You would be a sociopath. You would be the most evil person in the world. And I tell you, it is something of what happens when we live in a world where everyone, according to the Bible, is SIN positive. Everyone has got the shadow hanging over them. Everyone lives their life on a collision course with a holy God called Judgment Day. And, uh, and we have a cure, Jesus Christ. And it works. And you keep it to yourself. There's a famous um, atheist called Penn Gillette. He often... He often releases these YouTube videos, and a fascinating YouTube video a few years ago, he said he was performing. He's, a, he's an illusionist. And he says there was this one guy who came to three of his shows. He noticed him. And after the third show, this guy came to him after and said, hey, loved your work, big fan of yours. 
He says, I wanted to go, but I just feel compelled by God to, to tell you about Jesus. And he explains the gospel to Penn Gillette, who doesn't believe the gospel, but this is what he, he says in the blog, blog. He says he was so moved by this man's love. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, as this man did, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not share it? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Pendulette says, I could, if I disagreed with his point, I felt his love. I felt his love. The apostle Paul was driven by compassion, and it was a compassion that made him courageous. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. He tried this, he tried that, he did everything short of sinning. I mean, he, he, he got out of his comfort zones again and again. He, he entered into other people's cultures. He made himself accessible so that he could connect with all kinds of people. And, uh, and what we're doing this week is one more way of reaching out to people far from God. But this church is filled with other ways. Like, I hope you've got a few friends in your life that you pray for who are far from God. And you don't neglect those friendships. And you think of things you could ask them or say to them or invite them to. You've got Alpha coming up later this year. So exciting. <clears throat> Alpha is amazing, by the way. I'm a big fan of it. 13 million people have done Alpha. You invite three of your friends to Alpha, uh, and they come in that first night. Two of them say, yeah, I'll come back the next, the next, the next week. And by the end, one of them are Christians. I mean, just you have the courage to invite three people to something, and eight weeks later, they're Christians. I mean, and all you had to do is just have the courage to invite three people to one thing. Amazing. Um, anyway, all means possible. Last year, I'm going to finish my talk now. Remember the FIFA World Cup? Everybody's glued to the screen. But then there was a soccer team that nobody had heard of before that, that was outwatched. By, you know, we, we, we were more interested in this soccer team than any other soccer team. It was that little, that little Thai soccer team. In fact, they, weren't even, they didn't even have a ball when they became famous. They had a soccer practice. I don't know if you know the story last year. And then after soccer practice, the coach, without parental permission, he'll never make that mistake again, says, hey, guys, I want to show you this cool cave. And they park their BMXs, and they dig themselves four kilometers, four kilometers into a cave. Do you know how long four kilometers is? Like, what was this coach thinking? And, and, and look at the weather charts. It rains as they go in. Monsoon rains, the caves fill up, and uh, sometime later, they, they realize kids are missing, they find the BMXs, <gasps> they're in there, the caves are full of mud, moving water, it's pitch dark, they get two of the best cave divers in the world, these two British guys, go look, see if any of them are alive, these guys are two kilometers deep in there, it's so treacherous, uh, the tunnel gets so small that in four places they have to take their tanks off, and eventually they want to give up, two kilometers in. And uh, they pop up into this air chamber and notice there's some fresh graffiti. And they go, the kids made it this far. We've got to go further. And they go another two kilometers. He's wearing a GoPro. Pops up. You've seen it probably. And there are these little Thai children. So excited. Like the monster man with the GoPro. And he said, pops up. like, <laughs> And these Thai kids so well behaved. Like, hello. <laughs> Help us. But the, the, the video goes back. The world goes nuts. 
Get those kids out of there! And it's amazing what we're willing to do. Whole governments put departments to work. How are we going to get these kids out of there? Elon Musk, you know, SpaceX stops his company for a few days. Let's build a little mini submarine. Maybe we can put little kids in it. And they try everything to get these kids out of there. Some hundred of the best cave divers in the world start lining ropes in there. Some of them die. At least one guy died, if I recall. There's no guarantee that even one kid is going to be rescued. But nobody has got any doubt that if, no effort should be spared to try and get these kids out of there because you've seen their faces because they're people, they're children. They're somebody's child. They're somebody's brother. Get the kids out of there. And, and I use this as an illustration because it gives us just a little glimpse of what's in the heart of God when he sees his children who are lost and gives us just a little glimpse of what we're meant to feel towards people who are far from God. By all possible means, I might save some, says the Apostle Paul. I mean, Jesus loved us so much, he would rather die than live without us, which is what he did on that cross. And, uh, and he invites us into this adventure. We don't have to do any saving. Jesus did all the saving. But we can distribute the salvation. We've got the cure. We can get to people. We can get to people far from God. I'm so excited about this week. Get them while they're young. I spend my life trying to reach people for Jesus, and by far the most important people to reach are the young ones. You know why? Because strategy. Strategy is, 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 is you put this much effort in and you get this much payback. Two candles, okay? One big candle, other small candle. This one's burnt out. Then you go to church, big 50-year-old man, CEO of a big company, very important people walk in, they go, check who that is. And then you see little 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 boy, Little boy in the, in the kid's rock around the corner. No, you walk past the kid, you don't even see him. You just step around him. Who is the big candle and who's the little candle? Because you'd think a big candle, big man, little candle, little, little dude. Wrong. Small candle is the 50-year-old. He's burnt away 50 years of his life. You put all this energy in him, you get 30 years of discipleship out of this guy. The little kid's the big candle. You reach this guy or this little girl, you've got 80 years of shining their light for Jesus. Go for them while they're young. Go for them while they're young. This isn't part of my prep. I really feel like some of you trying to think what you should do with your life, and we should all be you know, loving kids, but some of you need to devote your whole life get them while they're young, loving them while they're young. They are so much more reachable while they're young. Jesus says the wise and the learned are so full of themselves, they, they shake off the gospel. But God, you have, you have delighted to reveal yourself to little children. 75% of all Christians, adults in the world, ask them, when did you first become a Christian? They said, before the age of 14. There's something in, the, in a young person, they're just so much more receptive to the gospel. They're not all sophisticated, complicated, just receptive. Get them while they're young. Just get the good stuff in them while they're young. Rather prepare an adult than repair, prepare a child than repair an adult. You've heard this before. It wasn't part of my message. It's just perfectly time for those of you that are doing holiday club this, this week. You're doing something awesome with your life. I hope you're laser focused. Laser focused on what's happening at every kid 
there's a kid you're going to love. They're going to go home, they're like, I've never been loved that much in my life. That's how much you're going to love them. You're going you're gonna to make them feel like 10 billion bucks. You know, they're going to go home, they're feeling like they won the lottery. That's how much love you're going to give them. Because they, they, they matter so much to God. And Christ's love is compelling you. Let's pray, let's pray. God, thank you for your presence. Can we have the band on the stage? Why don't we just all stand up? Why don't we all stand up? God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this uh, life of adventure and mission you put before us. The wonder of salvation, too good to keep to ourselves. The command to God and make disciples. The compassion that drives us with them. God, I pray firstly for Christians that you would fill us with your compassion. Not guilt. Guilt does nothing for us. Compassion. You, you make us care about people far from God. 